Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and Senior Correspondent at Yahoo News. Uh, this week on the show, I am very honored and privileged to have a friend of mine, uh, former Representative Adam Kinzinger, uh, on the program. For those of you, well, I don't think he needs much of an introduction. He is now a contributor to CNN. He is an outspoken proponent of helping Ukraine fend off an illegal and unprovoked Russian invasion and war of conquest. And perhaps most important of all, I mean, I consider him to be one of the most principled conservatives in America who took a stand to protect the republic from an insurrection and to stand up to a member of his own party, the most powerful member of his own party, the former president, Donald Trump. And Adam was um, one of the architects of the January 6th committee hearings, uh, and also uh, obviously a, a contributor to the final report, which is, I think, required reading for every American citizen just to see how close this country came to becoming an authoritarian state, or at least befalling the same fate that former uh, moribund democracies have befallen in the 20th century. Um, Adam, it's great to have you on. Uh, you and I talk offline sometimes. We are both uh, proud members of NAFO, the North yeah. American Fellows Organization, which I think to hear them say it is a collection of brain-dead cartoon dogs. I think it's actually quite more significant than that, but we've I already profiled you and talked about NAFO at length. Unfortunately, we don't have the time in this show to do that, but it's great to have you on. And there's a host of things I want to query you about, not least of all, your outspoken support for Ukraine. And and actually, even prior to that, one of the things that put you on my radar was you were an outspoken supporter of the Syrian revolution and the, I mean, essentially holding the Assad regime to account for its war crimes and crimes against humanity. I'm sure you've seen that the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons came out recently in, with a report pretty much definitively concluding that the Duma chemical weapons attack in 2018, was it, um, which prompted U.S. intervention, or I, I should say retaliation by the Trump administration, was indeed the work of the Assad regime. Chlorine gas dropped from helicopters uh, in a Damascus suburb. So I see you, and correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm mischaracterizing you, but I see you as sort of an adherent to the John McCain internationalist formerly institutional GOP when it comes to foreign policy. I mean, hawkish in certain respects, but also very much a proponent of NATO, not NAFO, uh, but NATO, the European Union, America's transatlantic relationship and alliance. And all of these things, dare I say, have been not rent asunder necessarily, because there are still Republicans who perhaps more quietly than they used to be, believe in these things and you know support policies to further these programs and, and treaties and alliances. But I mean, we have to be honest, the vanguard of the Republican Party right now has been hijacked by extremists, by people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, Matt Gates, who, I mean, to my mind, they have crossed the line from being kind of anti-anti-Russia into almost avowedly pro-Putin. Uh, certainly on Ukraine, their whole shtick is, this is one big grift. The United States shouldn't be supporting the Zelensky government. They shouldn't be supporting this population of 40 million people fending off, as I say, a war of conquest. Uh, we should... This is all about kind of a return to American isolationism, spend the money at home, even though I don't even think they believe that. It's, I think to them, it's it's more of a kind of the pantomime politics of the moment. Tell us a little bit about your experience being in the GOP. And also, I mean, on this committee, you were one of two Republicans, along with Representative Cheney, who is also no longer in Congress. I mean, basically primaried out by the, the pro-Trump contingent of your party. It's got to be a lonely place to be as a Republican with these positions and to be as outspoken about them as you are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I describe myself now, I would say, as a homeless Republican, a politically homeless Republican. And 
you know, I, I look at my 12 years in Congress plus two years running. So basically 14 years in the public eye on that. I'm like, I'm the same person I was. I mean, I've matured on some issues. I've kind of matured a little on the gun issue, just stuff as you get older, you see different things. And But I, Adam Kinzinger Day is the same one I was 14 years ago when I ran. And so, yeah. you know, I look at I look at what's happened to the party and I don't think it has anything to do with policy at all. I mean, I don't think I don't think Marjorie Taylor Greene gives a crap about Ukraine. I don't think Gates cares about Ukraine. It's about owning the libs. It's about culture war. It's about making the other side the enemy. And it's interesting because I was talking to somebody at the principal's first thing this weekend. And I said, you know, I think now that the parties seemingly have actually switched positions on foreign policy. The Democrats are now kind of the a little more interventionalist, and the Republicans have become this isolation party. I don't understand it, and I don't understand why more Republicans that know better don't speak out. But it's a real concern, particularly when it comes to, to Ukraine and where that will trend. The culture war argument, to my mind, I, I find it, well, very distracting from what really matters, right? You look at Bucha, you look at Borodyanka, you look at Irpin. I mean, this is happening in the 21st century. These are World War II style atrocities, well documented. There will be some kind of reckoning, a Nuremberg style, if not a tribunal with Putin in the dock, then, then some kind of accounting for what has taken place. And, you know, we're sitting here in America talking about drag queen story hour. And it re- reminds me of that old Onion article right after 9-11, you know, nation longs to care about meaningless bullshit. And yet all, <laughs> all we do is care or at least are preoccupied by meaningless bullshit in the face of to my mind, what is the greatest, most seismic event of my lifetime so far, which is... Yeah, I mean, we're, look, we we are the victims of peace. Like, let me explore that. So like humans in general love conflict. Mm-hmm. We may think we hate it, but put five people in a room, they can get along for a night. You put five people in a room for a month, you're going to have tribes, you're going to have division, you're going to have fights, right? But it's just... Right. I don't know what it is. It's part of our fallen nature, whatever. But we like conflict. We like disagreements. And we have it so good right now. I mean, it is really the best time in history to be alive. And so we don't have any threats. Canada's not going to attack. Mexico's not going to attack. Frankly, terrorism isn't as big of an issue as it was. People are fairly safe. And so you got to find an enemy. You got to turn on somebody. And that's what's happening. We're just we're victims of our own success. So people are out there trying to turn on each other. But I mean, even to take, I think I know the answer to this question, because as you say, it, it's kind of this Fugazi posture. It's not a real belief. I think half of the culture warriors on the right today don't actually buy the culture war that they're selling. It's kind of just a stance. It's it's a, a facade. But I mean, if you look at the war in Ukraine, here's this short little dweeby guy, Vladimir Putin, who sits at long ass tables because he's terrified of COVID or catching even you know a foreign germ of any kind. Uh, reportedly has to have, you know, fecal tests from visiting dignitaries. He's in his bunker. He's surrounded by, you know, an ever dwindling cadre of yes men and factotums who are misleading him about the state of the world, the state of his own government, his own military, the susceptibility of foreign countries to conquest by Russia. And then here you have a former Jewish comedian who once played Hava Nagila on a keyboard with his penis or pantomimed it, right? Who everybody <laughs> had completely written off. I was in Kiev in January, right before the war last year. Zelensky was polling 29 to 31%. You talk about divisiveness. You talk about the atomization of society and politics. Ukraine had devolved back into typical Ukrainian politics, right? Everyone hates the incumbent. And now this nation has completely rallied around the president, a guy who was offered by our country to be exfiltrated from Kiev 
to be government in exile and said, I need ammunition, not a ride, stayed there. And probably that was a major turning point in the war, if not in kinetic sense, then certainly in symbolic moral sense. This guy, you know, I'm sorry to use kind of the archaic language of the 20th century and, you know, perhaps too patriarchal uh, kind of phrase here, but this guy's a real man. Mm -hmm. If I'm a conservative, family values, traditional Christian type American voter, I'm going to look at a guy like Zelensky and say, that's who I want to cast my lot with, not some kleptocratic divorcee with God knows how much illicit wealth and how many bastard kids <laughs> running around Russia like Vladimir Putin. And yet you will hear, I mean, turn on Fox News, you will hear conservatives basically extolling Putin and his supposed virtues for being the bulwark of Christian civilization and, and the only thing stopping the woke hordes from descending all over the West and all of this stuff. And, and you know, the Russians are past masters at using this kind of cultural argument against the West, and they, they understand our own vulnerabilities and our own weaknesses. But tell me, you're more conservative than I. I mean, do they really believe this stuff? Do they, or is it just, they do? I, they do. So, you know, the thing, so I was raised in a, my, and my family left this when I was in my twenties, but we, I was raised in an independent fundamental Baptist home. Okay. And that's, so these are the people that, you know, you don't drink, you don't dance, you don't go to movies, that kind of stuff. And, you know, and King James only version of the Bible. Well, they're also very susceptible to conspiracy theories and they're very susceptible to, if you believe in the end of the world and the rapture and the return of Christ, it's always right now. That's what like, I have heard growing up every moment. And so what has happened is they see, and when you hear the term like globalist, right? And somebody says like, you're a globalist. Like, I think people that don't understand are quick to jump on the, it's actually anti-Semitism. And I think there's some of that, but globalism, as I understand it, because of the culture I was raised in at points, globalism means it's basically this one world government, new world order into the world, antichrist stuff. That's what it's talking about. And so in these people's minds, they are fighting against the rise of this new world order, one world government, Satan thing. So that's why you can make the mental jump to support Vladimir Putin, because look, you know, God in the Bible says, you know, war is sometimes okay. You're not going to go to hell if you participate in a, in a just war. And so Vladimir Putin's just doing his best, his level best to fight back against, frankly, the new world order and the antichrist. And so I think, does that mean Matt Gates believes it? Not necessarily, but I could, if I, if I had no moral compass, Michael, and I decided I wanted to be famous in the Republican party, I know the exact language to go at, and I know exactly where to turn people's fears. And that's, what's been done. It's fear. And I mean, you know, you have the, the kind of, um, shall we say the intellectual architects of MAGA, such as they are. Most of these people are Ivy league educated. I mean, they rail against the so-called elites, but they come from the most elite backgrounds and socioeconomic classes, and they go to the best universities, they have the best jobs, some of them have very highfalutin law degrees, they've worked for white shoe law firms. I mean, they are the elites, they are the quintessence of American elitism. And yet they somehow manage to project to and this is a condescending term, but it's a term that's used all the, all the time, flyover country, right? As though they are the exponents of their cause, right? They are the true representatives of the people. But I mean, you know, one of the things that struck me very early days, um, certainly after the immediate aftermath of January 6th, and I want to get into this incredible investigation that, that Congress led and that you were part of, the first response I kept hearing from people, both strangely enough on the far right, but also on the far left, who have somehow made this kind of weird not so weird, actually, and not so counterintuitive alliance with Trumpism, because they agree a lot with what Trump has to say. Horseshoe on theory, policy. brother. Horseshoe theory. Horseshoe theory, right. But one of the, th the big canards that you heard in the immediate aftermath of the insurrection was, this is the cry of the dispossessed working class of America. And 
that turned out to be fucking bullshit, if I may say so. I mean, most of these people were middle class. They make more money than I do, my parents do, right? Some of them have real estate brokerages. They flew in on private jets. This is, I mean, the lumpen bourgeoisie is a term uh, that's been sort of floating around. I know Tom Nichols from The Atlantic, who's also a never Trump conservative like yourself, has used it. And it just, it, it, this gets to your point. I mean, it is the real problem is the pathology that we all face kind of American boredom. America hasn't really suffered enough. Like all of our crises have been over there. 9-11 happened, yes. And that was a, a galvanizing moment. And we all kind of rallied around the flag. And, and then we went to Afghanistan for over 20 years. And then we went to Iraq. And then we had Libya and Syria, even Ukraine. It's all over there. It's not here until it comes here. And then when it came here, it was actually the people who perhaps, I don't know, just kind of were radicalized by their own sense of security or c creature comforts into saying, well, we need something that will keep us alive to the moment. Let's go overthrow the federal government. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think, well, first off, we can't underestimate Donald Trump's role in that. And I want to get to that because yeah. when everybody in there, like I believe at least, and I think most people, whatever their viewpoint would believe some version of this, that everybody in your life, you have like a constant battle between like good and bad, right? In your heart. Like there are days where I'm walking around with a dark cloud over me and I'm thinking bad things about people. And there are days where it's the opposite. That's That's a battle in your heart every day. And it's very hard for the, the light, the good side, to win. It's easy to let the darkness overtake you, to let that anger and fear, they're powerful emotions. And when somebody in power, like Donald Trump, and that's I think he's had an impact on this, on this country far beyond what I think I, anybody understands. When you have somebody with authority that stands up and speaks the dark part of your hearts, right? Yeah. Maybe you have a fight with racism and you know that racism's wrong, but you still have a mistrust from minorities. And now somebody stands up and says, you're right to mistrust minorities. It gives you permission to look past the moral implication of your belief, put that moral implication onto that leader mm -hmm. and let the darkness overtake you. And that's what's happening with the boredom. I mean, look at the number of 60 year old guys that are extremely overweight on four different heart medicines, so-called yearning for a civil war. But dude, you shut down CVS and it's and it's yeah. like you know medicine truck that comes in. These people are dead in a week. They don't understand the horrors of war. They don't understand the damage they're doing. So it's been boredom. It's been evil, terrible leadership. And yes, to every one of your listeners, if you think there is a certain strata of people this affects, you're wrong. I have met I've met billionaires that believe. The conspiracies, not just saying like, ah, I'm going for Trump because Biden's so bad. Right. They believe this stuff. Right. One of the richest guys, by the way, in the world, I know I recently who I'm fr was friends with. I recently had to block him because he started hitting me with some Ashley Babbitt stuff. And I'm just like, wow. No, I mean, you know, it's I live in Queens, New York, which is a very kind of purplish area of a deeply blue state. And I have to say, sort of the, the, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled, if you like, is trying to convince people that those who imbibe conspiracy theories or believe water's not wet, black is not white, up is not down, are so kind of alien and you can't even fathom them. These are people in your neighborhood. These are people you know. These are people you consider to be, in some cases, friends. My wife and I will go out to the local bar and, you know, at midnight, we'll turn to a guy we've known for several years. He'll be like, you know, we never really landed on the moon, right? And that, that that's only scratching the surface. Everything else from, you know, Zelensky is a drug-addled maniac who's stealing American taxpayer dollars. I mean, I got to tell you something, and, I, and, and I'm, I'm kind of giving away a little of my own reporting. One of the things I've been interested in is how does the institutional GOP on the Hill see uh, funding for Ukraine? 
And I'm talking only to congressional staffers for Republicans who tell me, and they can go into the granular detail of the Deloitte auditors, USAID, the spot checks that are done, a nurse in Kiev, did you receive your paycheck this week, courtesy of Uncle Sam? And there has been, this is a consensus view among Republican staffers who, you know, as you know, because you had them, are, are paid to get into the weeds of things, a consensus view that there has been no significant corruption or graft as far as American taxpayer money to Ukraine has gone. And that's both the military and the humanitarian level. Yet this insight, this sort of data set, it does not penetrate. Nobody, the people who who hate Ukraine or do not want to support Ukraine do not care. Marjorie Taylor Greene will continue to sing her gospel of this is theft, this is the expropriation of the American people, blah, blah, blah. Facts don't matter. And you know, you can't really have a democratic polity or a society if there's no consensus of the facts, right? This is the most dangerous thing in my lifetime. It used to be Republicans, Democrats could disagree about foreign policy, but at some level they have to come together and sort of say, here's the math or here's sort of you know X, Y, and Z. This doesn't exist anymore. Hit the nail on the head. This is the most dangerous thing because when it, whenever a country's in a bad place or whenever you know bad things are happening, you can always fall back on kind of common understanding, common facts, work out from there. When you, in particular, let's think just on the political side, this country was founded on revolution. We're proud of that, by the way. We right. stood up. We said no taxation without representation. We ha now have a significant amount of the public convinced in their heart. A lot of people will say they are, but they know otherwise. But there's a significant amount convinced in their heart that this election was stolen by people like me and the Democrats. Now, look, if I truly believed that that happened, I would be the one on the Capitol on January 6th because that is what we were founded on. And that's the concern because look at the January 6th tapes and the lies that Tucker Carlson has put out. And nobody's going to go. Fox News has no vested interest in telling the truth. Nobody's going to go to CNN to see the truth. All they see is that. You know, Tucker right. says, for instance, uh, look, uh, Brian Sicknick was alive still on January 6th. Therefore, the committee lied. No, we never said he was dead on January 6th. It's a straw man. This is where on the conservative side of it, I think it's been a massive failure of the church. Mm. If you think about the institution of the church and the fact that the vast majority of conservatives are church going, and you're supposed to have a pastor or a priest or a, a rabbi stand up in front of you and talk about things like truth. Now, particularly yeah. in the evangelical movement, you have people standing up and saying Donald Trump is God. It's a huge failure of the church. And what do you, how do you account for that? What is the reason for why the church has kind of forfeited its moral authority and its gatekeeper role in keeping its parishioners in check and giving them a sense of purpose? And Because everybody's human. And even leaders who can get caught up in, you know, this idea that they're fighting against evil. Mm. You know, look, if, you, if you're pro-life and you truly believe abortion is abhorrent, yeah. you can make yourself believe anything. You know, there's a story in the Bible, of course, about King David, and he fell and then was forgiven. So a lot of people like to say, look, Donald Trump is King David. Right. Like, uh, no, no, he's not. So yeah, I think it's just a, a failure of that. There's, look, there's a financial incentive. You don't want people leaving your church. Right. There's a lot of good pastors, but there's quite a few that are failing. Yeah. No, I mean, I, the racketization of America, too, has become yeah. quite a thing. You know, I mean, you, you watch CPAC or I saw clips of it floating around the internet and people are like hawking gold and silver. Oh, like it's UBC. I mean, it's, and you know, the grift isn't even, it's not artful. It's not like, oh, by the way, you know, here's my impassioned oratory and now buy my book. It's now like, here's male vitality supplements. And by the way, you know, school shootings don't happen. That's a myth, right? I mean, like, again, you mentioned like 1776. 
I don't remember people running around or it's not in the history books that, you know, people thought the Stamp Act was a conspiracy by Hugo Chavez to, you know, like defraud <laughs> the British Empire. Like there was a consensus, even if you were a royalist or if you were pro-revolution, you could sort of agree on the merits of the facts, right? This doesn't happen anymore. People well, really uh, think, it's, yeah. It's one of the concerns in terms of like when we talk about freedom of speech. Here's, by the way, here's the thing I hate. And I'm going to say it, though, because it's actually appropriate here. I hate when politicians say we need to have a discussion about. That's just a way to punt. Right. But right. in this case, we do as a country. What is actually guaranteed by the First Amendment? If you can stand up and say the insurrection didn't happen, kill the president, kill a congressman, kill whatever. And that's considered First Amendment speech. You will incite an insurrection. You'll incite violence. I think we would agree. I, you can't say kill the president. That's a good thing. Right. So. Why is it that a president can stand up and say, you got to use strength and go fight right now? And I think, you know, obviously we, we deeply protect the First Amendment, but I think things like the lawsuit against Fox News, if it's successful and then more like that can help to narrow organizations back to the to the middle. But yeah, it's like everything is a money making venture and people are the product. People are right. when you're watching Fox News, you are the product. And they just want to keep you long enough to buy a couple of my pillows. The argument that I remember a lot of us in journalism having after 9-11 and during the war on terror and interventions and wars in Afghanistan and Iraq was, you know, this balance between civil liberties and national security, right? At what point do you say we need to maybe revisit some of our old assumptions from the 18th century about fighting postmodern wars using with non-state actors and insurgents and people who do not believe in you know, treating people with dignity and respect if they're prisoners taken on a foreign battlefield and whatnot. Uh, now, though, the problem is civil liberties and national security. It's national security with respect to your own compatriots, citizens of your own country, if not your own elected representatives and leaders, right? I have this conversation with my European friends all the time. They ask, how is it that Donald Trump is still in the Republican Party? You can kick a member of the Labour Party in the UK out of the Labour Party, which has happened before George Galloway was booted out for basically endorsing Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Iraqi insurgents to kill British troops, for Christ's sakes. I mean, talk about sort of treasonous commentary. We don't have that here. I remember, I mean, you know, and I've said this publicly before, I met Lindsey Graham when Lindsey Graham was a never-Trumper during the campaign. And he was in conversation with Tony Blair, of all, all people, backstage in an event in Los Angeles. And he was saying, I don't know why we don't just kick him out of the damn party. I was like, well, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. If he's doing everything that undermines the tenets and values of the GOP, why should he subscribe to, why should he be a member of the party? And yet, I don't know, is there no mechanism for this kind of thing? Is that seen to be too provocative? Yeah, I mean, look, I think if you could go back to 2015... And you can never really kick anybody. You know, we had in Illinois this perennial candidate that was a self-avowed Nazi that would always get on the ballot and uh, yeah. as a Republican. And so the Democrats would hit us very unfairly, actually, and say, like, the Republicans got Nazis. Look, here's a Nazi. Well, the party has no mechanism. If you get the requisite signatures, you're on the ballot for that party. So right. in terms of that actual theoretic, it's why they can't kick me out. Right. But so I look at that and say, yeah, there's no mechanism. But in 2015 had everybody united and said, we are not going to allow Donald Trump on the stage. We're not going to allow Donald Trump to, you know, look, they canceled the primaries in 2020 in some states, which I didn't even know they could do, but they did. You could have done that. The problem is now Trump owns the party. But yeah, it's a little different. You know, we have lost party discipline. Frankly, I, you know, I love John McCain. He was a good personal friend of mine. But, you know, I think McCain-Feingold took a lot of power from the party because it took away soft money 
Mm-hmm. And then Citizens United added a lot of money from the fringes and extremes. So the party has no power like it used to. I mean, and it's sort of extraordinary because just to sort of read the room and the reporting and the legal problems that bedeviled Donald Trump and his campaign, frankly, I mean, you know, this is a guy who may well wake up one day and find himself indicted, although I don't know. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the likelihood of that. But it doesn't seem like he's riding high anymore. Right. Like it's, you know, during the Arab Spring, we would talk about Mubarakism without Mubarak. We have sort of Trumpism without Trump. He's still kind of a kingmaker in some respects, but, you know, the odds are he's not going to even necessarily get the nomination this time, which is why he's going hammer and tongue against DeSantis. And there's all this internal strife within the GOP. And yet we still have that kind of overhang. The, The ethos that he created over the course of the last seven or eight years is very much with the party. Right. And that doesn't get that takes generations to get removed once it's set in generations and it takes unique leaders so one of the things that i think was interesting about trump so i don't think he ever intended to be president i think pretty much everybody knows that he just wanted to kind of go build his brand be an asshole whatever Mm -hmm. and uh what he didn't know is that the country was actually ready for an asshole so he was in front of the the polls never reflected it or anything. He just happened to be the asshole at a time when people wanted that. Right. And I think the traditional view right now, and it's still maybe too early, but the traditional view is that to win the GOP nomination, and I don't write Donald Trump off yet, unfortunately, but to win the nomination, you have to be like Trump. You have to be a Ron DeSantis or whatever. I think that may still hold true in 24, but I also think that it's going to be some candidate at some point that comes forward with an optimistic, hopeful vision. Mm. You know, let's think Obama 2008 comes forward with that kind of vision and actually realizes they're now in front of a wave of Americans that are actually desperate for something better. We don't know any different right now. So everything's like, you're the enemy. Everything's the worst. When somebody can come and actually speak good words, I think it might it actually might catch fire. Maybe it'll take another few years. But I think Americans' engines have been on red lines so long, they're just ready to break. Well, you know, one of the things that, that struck me as surprising about Joe Biden and, and what he's managed to achieve at the domestic level, despite having been, I mean, I, I, sort of an, an accidental president in, in most respects, right? I mean, this is a guy who was not fated for the White House and only ran because of how awful Trump was. And after you know, Charlottesville, he was, when he decided he needed to throw his hat in the ring. Biden, I mean, everything about him, you know, my wife thinks she just calls him. He's like a grandpa. He's very reassuring. He's very comforting. It's sort of, you know, a return, the lowering of the temperature of America's political kind of situation. And yes, you know, the fact that he comes from a prior generation, that he's lived through all of these momentous events in American and world history, including the Cold War and the end thereof, we needed that at the time. But it sounds like what you're saying is the next phase is going to have to be a Reagan, an Obama, somebody who kind of really rallies and unites and has an optimistic sales pitch. And my fear, and maybe I'm being too cynical and pessimistic, but my fear is we're so kind of, there's such toxicity in the system. And there are so many people who live to be the spoiler element and who basically don't think anybody acts in good faith anymore, right? They can't debate. They can just attack. They can just vilify and tear down. That with such a person were to come along, there's just going to be this wave of vituperation and hatred. I mean, Obama went through that Christ. I mean, Trump was like the leading conspiracy theorist about Barack Obama not having been born in the United States, right? And then he goes on to become president himself. Do you think that, I know every politician has to say, I'm very hopeful about the future of America, but you're not a politician anymore. So you're a former. I'm hoping you're going to be honest. Do you think maybe that ship has sailed? Like we're past the point of no return right, here right. as a country? I don't think we are. I think, I mean, it will never, it'll never go back to like the quote unquote, the good old days where everybody right. was clapping and, 
And, you know, you just did these fireside chats. But I don't think we're necessarily destined to have just complete clowns as president. I don't think we're necessarily destined to have this, like, just constant division. The other side is the enemy. I do think, though, probably, you know, God forbid, but probably for the next four years to decade, it's going to get worse. But I think there's the reason I have the hopeful optimism is because, look, I love baby boomers because, you know, my my parents are baby boomers. Right. That generation is really angry. That mm-hmm. generation is a lot of what's driving this anger. They're passing away every day. That generation will be far less in 10 years. I also think in looking at the history of our country, every time we have hit a moment that seems like it's irrevocable, we always come back from that. The biggest mm-hmm. thing working against us is we have so much information that I think we have lost the ability to think through information and we just turn to actors that we trust. That's why people watch Tucker Carlson because yeah, I don't know if January 6th was real or fake. I have so much compelling evidence on both sides. I'm just going to watch Tucker because I trust him for some reason and I'll do what he says. That's why I think we've had this rise in authoritarianism is because people's brains have been broken. They don't know how to manage massive amounts of information and they've just decided to pick somebody. But you know, it's funny you mentioned Carlson because uh, you know there's, he, he continues to kind of propound this conspiracy theory about the insurrection wasn't an insurrection, and also, P.S. the election in 2020 was stolen. Right now, this is a guy. His network faces a 1.6 billion dollar lawsuit from Dominion Voting Systems, and this is one of the most extraordinary legal complaints I've ever seen filed in a, doc, a court docket where they've got every anchor on the show, Rupert Murdoch, all the executives saying this is horseshit. We know this to be un, untrue. We're just going to keep pushing it anyway. Oh, and by, by the way, we can get away with it because you know the barrier between reportage and opinion or bloviation is completely fudged. Nobody takes Fox News seriously as a news gathering organization. I should say, by the way, there are excellent reporters at Fox News, particularly in military affairs and national security issues. But the fact that they're basically saying the emperor has no clothes here, we are snake oil merchants, right? And yet, I mean, if, if I'm a viewer, if I'm a consumer and I feel had, I'm going to be pissed off, right? You're holding me in contempt. You think I'm a fool. You think I'm a moron. And yet people can't get enough of this, right? Yep. They don't feel that. They don't feel duped. They think that, oh, if, if this is an illegal complaint being filed by the enemy, it must be false, right? It's- Tucker never said that. Murdoch never said that. It's all a conspiracy. Or if they said it, they're trying to play a you know three-dimensional chess or what. I don't even know the logic anymore. I think the logic is also... It's my team. Right. Like, I think that's the same thing with like the election being stolen narrative. I think a lot of people knew it wasn't, but they're like, it's my team. I have to belong. So, you know, you and I are fairly active on Twitter. We could do an hour long conversation on it. So I'll make it quite short. I look at somebody like Elise Stefanik and some of this dynamic on Twitter. I'm like, how did she become what she was in a short amount of time? I'll tell you what happens. She is a moderate. She says something the left loves. They say nice things about her. Then she does something conservative because she's a conservative. All of a sudden, what do you see? Every lefty, I get this every day, by the way, that says like, I thought you were something different. You're just a typical Republican. Now, I have the strength of character to be like, no, I'm just me. You can be whatever you want. But the pressure then to be like, well, yeah, I got to pick a side Mm -hmm. is very intense. And I think that works with everybody in their everyday life. You may not believe everything you see on Fox, but it's your team. And look, I mean, this probably doesn't come as much of a surprise, although it's not something that people, I guess, on my quote unquote team say very often. But there is a legitimate critique to be done of the press and of the media. I mean, I'm somebody who I'm writing a book on Russian intelligence. I spent more than 10 years of my life reporting on Putin's regime and 
Russian misadventures abroad and all the rest of it. And, you know, sometimes I would turn on the TV and I would hear people talking about the Trump-Russia interference campaign and the Mueller report or, you know, what was then thought to be the findings of the Mueller. And they just sounded like they didn't know what the hell they were talking about, or they were just winging it. And they were just kind of ticking all the party political boxes. And that does a disservice to the country, you know, and, and it does a disservice to your ideological camp because it sets expectations such that when the results are delivered and it feels kind of anticlimactic or like a damn squib, everyone feels let down and betrayed and demoralized, right? Yep. And, I, you know, I, I kept worrying like, look, the Mueller report and the, that investigation was not a counterintelligence investigation. It was into con- obstruction of justice and conspiracy, which I come from a family of lawyers. That's a very difficult, heavy lift to make when you're not dealing with the president of the United States, much less the commander in chief himself, right? And I was worried that people were expecting Donald Trump to be frog marched out of the Oval Office in cuffs by Bob Mueller himself. And anything short of that was going to be this colossal sense of defeatism and dejection. And that's what happened. And now you get, frankly, people on the other side who I consider to be equally fraudulent, if not even more so, and acting in bad faith, saying, you see, the whole thing is a hoax. The whole thing is deep state conspiracy theory. They, they, they knew they, were, they had nothing. There's no there there. This is all a, a way to kind of stitch up a populist president they didn't like. It does lead to the furthering of polarization in the bad sense. Like, I believe that we should have two sides fighting it out all the time. That's just a good, healthy democracy. But not this. This is something different. This is a a very frightening moment. And yeah, I do. By the way, just on the first impeachment, I agree. I think it was a tough lift. Obviously, uh, Bill Barr coming out and saying, uh, I always almost say Bill Burr when I say his name. But Bill Burr is funny. Bill Barr is is hilarious. Bill Barr, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. So Bill Barr, you know, coming out and saying, oh, this exonerates him before anybody even saw the report was a massive disservice as well. But yeah, it became... It became personal. Let's look at the whole, and I don't, I don't want to open this can of worms, but let's look at the whole coronavirus origin, okay? Yeah. There were people that if I said that there is concern that this came from a lab, I was labeled as anti-Asian, typical Trumper, whatever. Mm. The left at that point picked a decision on the COVID virus based on politics. By the way, it's way worse on the right. This is no equivalent, but this is where everybody has to look inside and say, how are we going to break this? Well, you have to break it first in your own heart. You have to change yourself first. Right. No, I mean, and, and honestly, it is the case that everyone around the kitchen table was wondering, what the hell is this thing? Where did it come from? Could it have leaked from a lab? This is not, it shouldn't be off limits to have this conversation right. or even air these questions. I mean, Vanity Fair did a, not exactly a bastion of right-wing conservative thinking, Vanity Fair, a whole investigation into this on how essentially sleuths on the internet were digging into it in a way that, frankly, scientific institutions were were not choosing to do, right? And when you have the FBI director come out and say, with moderate confidence, which is, I mean, I, I keep trying to remind people, moderate confidence or a, a moderate assessment is does not mean, it's not as wishy-washy as it may seem, right? We had a moderate- About confidence. as good as you're ever going to get. Yeah, time. I mean, moderate confidence is how what the CIA put on the odds that bin Laden was in Abbottabad, right? I mean, it's pretty good. That's a story. I don't care what your politics is. That's a story. And it needs to be reported. I mean, I get this all the time as a journalist. Oh, I'm sorry, the, the facts- they don't conform to your preconceived notions or your worldview, it must be my fault, right? I'm telling you things you don't want to hear. I'm I'm working for the enemy. Oh, bullshit. I mean, I'm outspoken about my politics and my opinions. And one of the reasons I am is I want people to know where I come from. Yep. So you can take what I say or you can leave it. You can think I'm compromised. You can think I'm biased. I don't care. Um, like that's on you to d- determine. Uh, and, and frankly, I, I do agree that, you know, all journalists have 
a set of opinions. They all come with priors, as they say online. And, you know, but you have to have the facts to back it up. And this is a story, you know, that the FBI has come out with this. It's a story, the Department of Energy, even though that's a low confidence assessment. But we, we need to be having this conversation as a country, right? This is one of the yeah, most- Yeah, and if you're, traffic- if you're one of these folks that are like on the left that finds yourself kind of knee-jerk against whatever, I think about the fact that if you're concerned about kind of this tribalism, which I think most people are, you're not helping, right? That when you do that, you're giving ammunition to the right to say, look, they just hate us. And uh, so, you know, that's a whole nother, I'm sure that's a whole hour podcast to get into. But that is, you know, when it comes to truth, it's like, come at the lens with your beliefs. Nobody's saying to be a squishy moderate, right. even if you are one. It's like, but just call balls and strikes sometimes. That's what I tried to do in Congress. Didn't work out in the long run, but I feel proud of it. Yeah. No, and it, it's it's funny, too, because I remember in 2014, when the first invasion of Ukraine happened, you know, Barack Obama was president, and you had an administration that very clearly did not want a confrontation with Russia. Russia was a transactional regional power, I believe was the term of art used at the time. You know, we had had the reset, the focus was the pivot to Asia, remember that? whole foreign policy. Right. And I know for a fact, there were all kinds of things on the table, including sending Javelin anti-tank missiles to the Ukrainians back then when their army was way more defunct and in a state of disrepair than it is today, vetoed by the president. Fine. Sanctions. They were never sectoral. It was like, how do we make this thing go away? And I remember arguing with liberal democratic friends that no, Russia is a revanchist dictatorial power that's not going to stop here. It's going to continue to do things to undermine democracy in Europe, possibly even closer to home. And that was in prelude to 2016. And then, you know, like the flicking of a light switch, the assumption or the the conventional wisdom was Putin robbed our party of the White House. Now the Russians are hiding under our bed. They're everywhere. They're doing everything. They're responsible for it. And, you know, again, you are now giving a gift to Moscow to treat them as this 10 foot tall behemoth. And frankly, and you know, this is something we're going to have to also reckon with in the rearview mirror in terms of our assessment of Russia's capability in invading Ukraine and how it didn't take Kiev in three days. Building up Russia to be 10 feet tall, building them up to be this sort of strategic genius regime with military and intelligence dominance all the live long day only did us a disservice because we overestimated what they could do, right? Yep. And this is why facts do matter over narrative. I hate the word narrative as a reporter because it's like, no, narrative does not exist. Sometimes facts militate against what you would like to be the case and you have to report it. Look at Nord Stream 2, what just came out today. I mean, you know, yeah. I heard thing and I'm like, well, that doesn't make much sense because I remember arguing with every administration about why aren't you doing more to stop the Germans from building this pipeline? And all of a sudden we're accused of bombing it. No, I mean, yeah, the Ukrainians doing it. That makes more sense. And by the way, they're in a yeah. war with Russia, you know, like, gee. I think it's fantastic in hearing it. I'm like, I actually didn't have a Ukrainian group in a yacht dropping a bomb on my bingo card. <laughs> you know, like, wow, that's pretty uh I mean, pretty look, th- this line was kicking around the intel communities, not just in this country, but other NATO EU member states for quite a while. And yeah, by the way, the Germans knew, know about this. It's now eking into the German press and it's going to the details and the, the parties responsible will come to light at some point. But what does that do to the Russian line? They bear hug, no pun intended, Cy Hirsch's theories. And now they're going to say, whoops, no, in fact, it was the Ukrainians, not the CIA and some <laughs> not so covert yeah. operation under the, the guise of a military exercise. Anyway, I want to talk to you, though, about Ukraine and your position on this, because you've been very outspoken. You've kind of embraced or or taken up the McCain mantle about what we should be doing. You're a former Air Force pilot yourself, so you know about 
the avionics, what what is how what it takes for a pilot to be trained up on foreign airframes and all the rest of it. Where do you think the Biden administration has fallen short in terms of security assistance and helping Ukraine? Well, first off, I'm very bitter at Joe Biden's administration on the pullout of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And so I want to be fair with them on Ukraine because I think I don't want that to color it. I think the administration's been pretty decent when they started to see that Ukraine might not actually fall. Yeah. I think initially, and I, I had a, when I was in Congress, I had a, a brief and it was me and Mike McCall from state. Uh, this was like October when they were basically predicting the invasion. And we're talking about moderate confidence. They gave us a high confidence probability that this was happening, which I had never heard from an Intel agency before. And, you know, one of the things I told him is like, start arming, start hitting Wagner groups in other areas if you don't want to engage directly in Ukraine and stuff like that. I feel like, and I don't know if it's Jake Sullivan or who's pushing it, there's somebody in the administration that's always kind of pulling back just a little bit. And then eventually they get to where they have to get, okay, yeah, we will give HIMARS. Yeah, we will give Abrams. And each time there's always somebody holding back an inevitable escalation of our support. I think I'm in the, the, the group that says, how do you want to end this war? You either end it by turning your back on Ukraine or you end this war by accelerating our assistance and getting this thing over with. Yeah. I, call Russia's bluff. They were going to nuke us with HIMARS. They're going to nuke us with everything we sent. They're not doing it short of like Ukraine or NATO invading Russia. I think on the F-16 front, they need to get the F-16. They will eventually get the F-16 anyway. The new Ukrainian Air Force will. It'll take two to three months probably to train up a Ukrainian pilot, which they do have a surplus of right now, on the F-16, how to fly it, how to implement its weapons. And how to do, uh, you know, air to ground, which is they don't have a lot of. Right. I think you got to start that training now, and I think eventually it may not be American F-16s, but Egypt may give them some, and we can mm-hmm. backfill that like we've been doing in Eastern Europe. And I mean, from what I understand, I'm not a, an expert in any of these things. I just I have to talk to actual pilots like yourself and and people with military backgrounds. But it's not the most difficult thing in the world to train a MiG-29 pilot on F-16s. They're different airframes, yes, but it's, you know, it, it ain't like pushing a wheelbarrow versus driving a Lamborghini, right? It's No, and look, we have uh, U.S. pilots that are qualified and fly MiGs. We do that yeah. in like op four, you know, they do it in exchanges. So you may have F-16 yep. pilots that go to, you know, Poland and, and fly Polish MiGs with the Polish Air Force. Like, it's not that hard to do. Right. And I mean, I keep hearing this line, although it's it's sort of been of a lower volume in, in recent months. But, you know, one of the obstacles for providing attackums, uh, the missile that can be easily plug and play with the high Mars and goes a distance of what, 300 miles or something? 300. Yeah. Well, it goes you know, up into space and comes down. It's crazy. Right. So, you know, Putin sees that as an, a red line. It's a red line. And if we do that, you know, God knows what he's going to do. But here are the facts, right? China and India have made it very clear, or it has been reported that they have made it clear. Uh, and and even Putin himself, according to the Financial Times, has realized that using any kind of WMD, tactical nuke, whatever, A, gains him nothing of substance on the battlefield and only further isolates him and makes life unpleasant for him and his regime, right? So if that's off the table and the provision is, here are attackums, you can use them, but you cannot use them to fire inside Russian Federation territory. So if you're going to bomb Engels Air Base or whatever, you better do that with your own homemade drones or your own Soviet era missile systems, right? Anything we give you does not cross the border. As far as Crimea, 
Well, do we believe Crimea is Ukraine or do we not, right? If it is, then they have the right to at least put it into play yep. uh, and certainly to, to retake it if they have the capability of that. So it seems like we keep moving the needle slowly, slowly, slowly. But as you say, like, you know, the longer it goes on, the more Ukrainian lives are squandered, the more expensive it is to the taxpayer conscious, you know, accountants among us. And, you know, it's just the more Russia thinks that it's got a chance, right? We need to rob Putin of the conceit that he can actually win this thing, which I still... He, yeah, still I think what's clear is, look, Russia doesn't care about human life. Yeah. So casualties, while, you know, Russian deaths and casualties are good. I mean, I hate to say it so crudely, but, you know, you want more and more of them to not be there. It's not going to be a decision that changes it. Because in Putin's mind, every day the war goes on is one day longer. He's not killed and he lives. So to him, he's buying himself time. He's maybe trying to pull a miracle out and win it. But, you know, this idea that like whatever we're going to do, whether it's ATACOMs or F-16s are going to be escalatory and not, like it's just nonsense anymore. And the other thing that is, is coming pretty clear now is the need for more artillery shells than we can provide. Yeah, we have a military that. If we go to war, it's primarily going to be Air Force. There will be some artillery with ground movements. Well, since we're not providing Ukraine an aggressive Air Force, Ukraine has to rely on artillery. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't have enough because we never plan to do war that way. Right. We never plan to have an all arty war. And so that's a huge problem. So you're going to have to speed this along or find yourselves depleting U.S. stocks. What I'm getting from sources on the Hill is the new canard that's been tossed out by the administration as well. We can't give them attackums, not because it's escalatory, but because we don't have enough of them, right? Lockheed doesn't manufacture this missile system anymore. They've upgraded to the prism. So it's just whatever we got on the shelf, that's all we have in the event America finds itself in a state of war. And yet I hear that's bullshit. We have at least 1,700, not getting into what classified programs there are for attackums and stockpiles and whatever. And by the way, I mean, isn't this super crazy trillion dollar military budget that America has cobbled together for generations. Isn't the reason we have it because we fought a cold war and we had one major main adversary. Now we've got China, obviously, but uh, you know the, the chances of the United States going to war with China in the immediate future seem slim and none, even if Taiwan were to kind of become a conflagration tomorrow. Who needs attackums right now? Not the US Army, right. you know? One, one yeah. on earth needs them more than anybody, right? Yeah. And it's like, look, a lot of the stuff we give are stuff that's going to time out anyway at some point. That's why when you know you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene say we've given a gajillion dollars, half of that is usually just the value that's put on equipment, right? That's right. going to be timed out anyway and replaced. But yeah, I mean, look, it's I get it. We don't want to get rid of all of our ATACMs. Ukraine can use 50 of them. They can use 100 of them to great effect. And by the way, if you don't want to have to use our stockpile of stuff, how about you just make sure Russia gets beat here? And by the way, secondarily, if we actually go to war with Russia, it's going to be really quick work. If Russia actually provokes us to that point, we'll be a thousand one casualties and quick. And I don't think China's looking short of Taiwan, in which case I don't know the out plan, but I doubt attackers play a huge role in the defense of Taiwan. Mm. I don't foresee China invading anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, you know, the utilitarian motive for everything but WMD to Ukraine, which people like Ben Hodges and certainly our Eastern European allies have said, is, you know, as the Estonians put it, for every tank a Javelin missile takes out in Ukraine, that's one less tank that can invade Estonia in future, right? So that is an investment in security policy. That is not charity. That is not we're giving the, the store away for free, right? And also, I would say, you know, at the end of this thing, assuming Ukraine wins it, you're going to have the most battle-tested and capable military in all of Europe. And frankly, you're also going to have a military intelligence and intelligence service that 
to can beat the band in terms of the creativity and the stuff. I mean, honestly, if Nord Stream 2 is true the way it's been spun, even if it was a freelance kind of operation, look what the Ukrainians are capable of doing. That's um, right. With great Well, look at and look at too like, you know, you've got a battle tested obviously country. We now mm -hmm. have intel on so many pieces of Russian equipment yeah. that we thought maybe was really good that maybe we found out isn't or pieces that we didn't know existed. Yep. We found out what the Russian military is capable of. We know their battle plan. We know where to hit them if we go to war. It's their command and control because that's what's extremely weak. Um, we got all this information. You know, We were able to basically give Ukraine our weapons that are non-classified. So it's not like if it falls in Russia's hands, we're going to lose anything. And now you've got a generation, and this is going to have an impact on Ukraine itself. But you have a generation of people that are willing to work for private military companies pushing back against Wagner for instance, in Africa or whatever, and they know how to fight Russians. That's something that's very important to us. And the rebuild of Ukraine, I think in 30 years, if this is done right, Ukraine can be right up there with Germany in terms of the importance and the power it has in Europe. And I mean, in terms of an ally, they're creeping up to the point of being a you know major non-NATO ally of the United States on par with what Israel, Japan, other countries like that. And should the United States find itself in a state of... People forget... Ukraine sent soldiers to Iraq yeah. to help us yeah. fight that war, right? Yeah. They sent soldiers abroad on behalf of the United States already. Can you imagine what they'd be prepared and willing to do given the outsized assistance we've given them so far and if we help them win this thing? Yeah. And it's going to be. This know, will be like a US British friendship. It's like we can have our disagreements for the next 50 years, but we will always be brothers after this. Well, listen, um, I know I've, I've taken up quite a bit of your time, but I, I do want to, um, your people, <laughs> your new people, <laughs> ask me to mention this project that you're a part of, breakfreenow.org, yeah. which is, it, I would call this the kind of the, the vital center or the radical center of American politics is what you're trying to kind of channel here. This is tired of political extremes, reject conspiracies, stand for truth, courage, and integrity. Tell us a little bit about this project and what, I mean, I think I, we've kind of gotten into what motivated you to do it and, and the course of this episode. But I mean, this seems to be, you know, your kind of endeavor in civil society. So what what are what are we talking about here? Yeah, this is part of my country first movement, country1st.com. That all came after January 6th, literally exploded into a movement that I had no intention of creating. And now we have 300,000 members and it's not a partisan thing. So it's like there is a desperation about people that may be Republican or Democrat that actually want to have conversations with each other and learn that again. And Break Free Now, the breakfreenow.org, we have a six minute video on there that I would encourage people to look at. It's like a 1984 theme. Mm -hmm. And the point of it is to say, Look, we're not asking you to leave the Republican or Democratic Party. We're asking you to recognize you don't have to be extreme. Right. You don't have to do what they tell you. You can come up with your own ideas, your own vision and stuff. So I'm excited about it. It's been fun. And I encourage anybody to go watch that video and uh, let me know if it's too scary. Now, it definitely has a, an Orwellian, I mean, in a, a good marketing way kind of aspect to it. <laughs> but let me ask you this. I mean, do you think that for the moment, if the Republican Party is enthralled to a guy like Trump or his, you know, sort of the, the ideology of Trumpism, isn't tribalism to an extent kind of necessary at the moment? I mean, I know a lot of never Trump Republicans basically vote down the line Democrat now as a protest against what the, their party has become. I don't think you're quite in that 
camp, like, um, you know, Tom Nichols, Charlie Sykes, Bill Crystal. But there is a growing concern that we are really one reasonable party, a one reasonable party state at the moment, even though yeah. obviously you have your policy problems and disagreements with the Democrats. How does the Republican Party get rehabilitated or rescued? And what is, if any, a kind of third camp position here? I mean, there's not a really a viable independent party or third party alternative. Yeah, not yet. And, and it's part of it's because we're so ingrained in the two party system that you know, it's like the idea of a third party is fantastic until you start talking about issues. And we believe there are only two sides to every issue. Abortion, you're pro-choice, you're pro-life. That's it. Right. That's actually a hundred different views on abortion. But, you know, I think the big thing for me, I actually voted for some Democrats for the first time this last election because for that very reason, I can't vote for election deniers. That Because, right. you know, if your policy positions suck to me, that's much less threatening than your belief that the election was rigged. And so I think it's important for self-identified Republicans, don't leave the party. Don't stop calling yourself a Republican. I still get people like, why are you still a Republican? I'm like, really? You want me to leave and just be some independent? No. Yeah. Like, keep it. Fight for it. But be willing to vote again. I have no loyalty to the GOP. Lose your loyalty to the GOP. Let them go down in flames if necessary. Or have somebody that's inspirational come up and take it over. But you cannot enable them. And it's been a party of enablers. The prospects of the future, it, it seems like there's a short bench at the moment in terms of the kind of inspirational leadership you're looking for. I mean, your thoughts on a Ron DeSantis presidency? I'm not a huge Ron DeSantis fan. I, you know, I knew him in the House. I, you know, I guess I could be okay with it, except that he's just decided to go full culture, culture war and, uh, and use the instruments of government against the economy. I'm truly a free market conservative when it comes to domestic stuff. And uh, when you use government to threaten Disney because you don't like a social policy, I don't like all of Disney's social policy, but that's a corporate decision. Right. Uh, that, that's not a Republican to me. I like somebody like a Tim Scott, but I'm not inspired by many others. Well, I mean, I could keep you on and talk about a whole host of other things, including the state of Twitter at the moment under the uh, the reign of his lordship, Elon Musk. But maybe we should save that for a, a follow on. Episode. Next time. Next time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Adam, it, it's great uh, to, to chat with you. This is, I think, the longest conversation you and I have ever had, but I knew it would be um, illuminating and, and uh, edifying for me anyway. So yeah, come back by all means, uh, now that you're a little more free time than you used to, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> by the way, you know, um, I got to make a shout out to my my mother-in-law, who's a huge fan of yours, perhaps in inappropriate ways, but um, my, <laughs> my wife's family comes from the Detroit suburbs. So they are very Midwestern stock. And what's your mother-in-law's name? I'll, I'm going to do a video for her and I'll shoot it to you. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Leslie Wilson. All right. Yeah, and she's uh, she'll she'll be thrilled. She's uh, we were just visiting her and my father-in-law in Punta Gorda, Florida, but they live in um, West Bloomfield, Michigan. Ah, where my wife nice. grew up. You know that area. Yeah. So yeah, you know, I was going to say Midwesterners like finds like no matter where in the world. And my wife is a Sparty, and my mother-in-law is a Wolverine. So you can imagine that family no, battle. Yep battle. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, man, it was great to uh, to chat to you. And uh, like I said, you know, this is not a Charlie Rose style interview show. It's conversational. It's chatty. I bring people on who I want to hear from. So I don't try to confront. And I'm sorry if I wasn't as antagonistic as I should have been and pressing you on things. But uh, yeah, I, you know, it's a kind of like-minded thing. So it was great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You got it. Uh, you've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and Senior Correspondent at Yahoo News. My guest this week is former Representative Adam Kinzinger, and we will see you next time. Thanks very much. Thank you.